Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to yet another episode of Lost in Science, uh, where we will get lost in science and hopefully we will somehow find our way back out by the end of this half hour. Uh, My name is Chris and today I'm talking about something that has been in the news um, recently. It's a website called Sci-Hub, which is aiming to, to break the back of the publishers who are... Oh, this is like Pirate Bay for Pirate Bay for Science, it's called it. So it's basically, articles. yeah, downloading scientific articles and making them available free huh. to the world. Um, it's been quite controversial. Um, there are court cases going on, but we're just going to have a bit of a look at that and a bit of a chat about hmm. what all that means and how science works, I guess, in that context. Claire... Well, actually, today I am going to be talking a bit about man's other best friend, the cat, not the dog. Right. We all love cat videos, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah they're great. Sure, and it, why not? Well, <laughs> we were just watching some just before the show. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Yeah. yeah. There has actually been some uh, new research that has come from a citizen science project in South Australia that highlights the big five personality traits of cats, which is pretty amazing. So I'm going to talk a little bit about... You're going to give us a top five list of cat personalities. You're like, this is the most (laughs) internet thing ever. Um, I I honestly don't think cats are anyone's best friend. Let's just be clear on that. But I'm not going to be talking about cats I'm going to be talking about molecules. Specifically, I'm going to be doing a molecule in a minute segment, but I'm actually squeezing in two molecules because... Ah, um, they're small? They're, well, they are small, but one of them has been widely used as a common cold treatment and the other one is being sold as a common cold treatment. And I'm going to talk about why that's mm. not really a great idea, but uh, more details on that later in the show. Okay, well, on with the show. Right, so yes, the Pirate Bay of Science, I think, is what Claire referred to it as. This is uh, a website called SciHub, which has become quite notorious for making available, uh, I guess, protected, formerly protected um, scientific papers, but for free for people to use. Mm. And it's got obviously quite a bit of criticism from the um, from big science or big journals, I suppose. <laughs> um, but it's also as you can imagine, being quite popular with some other people. So it's an interesting sort of situation. I thought we'd have a bit of a look at how it actually works. 
So this is, a, like I said, a website called Cyber. It was started by a Kazakhstan researcher called Alexandra L. Bakian back in 2011. Uh, now, she was from Kazakhstan, as, as I mentioned. Mm. And a lot of people, particularly in your, not your, um, your rich Western countries, have trouble accessing scientific papers because it costs mm. money to access scientific papers. And they're not associated with an institution that, ha- that pays up well, for those rights or...? Well, not many people are associated with institutions to do that. I mean, it's it's a common problem when people say, I mean, when you're a student, often you can get that kind of access. Yeah. But the subscriptions are becoming more and more expensive that um, various institutions are dropping their subscriptions. Right. Um, I think even Harvard has stopped, can no longer afford to keep up some of its subscriptions. And if, yeah, you, ha- wow. if you don't have a subscription to uh, to the um, the journal, then it costs you something like 30 bucks to read a paper. And when you have to yeah. read... Hundreds of papers, often for your, um, say, for a PhD or something like that, or to do your research. It's a very expensive exercise. Yep. So what happens, a lot of scientists get around this by sharing papers for free. They'll say to their friends, have you got a copy of this particular paper? I want to read it. And they will say, oh, yeah, I downloaded that. Uh, and they all ha- pass it around. Also, people will contact the, the researchers themselves and say, hey, can you send me um, a PDF of your of your paper? Mm. You know, it's, it's fairly common. But that is getting around the journal. And the journals don't quite like that. Now, what you may not realize, so the way that the journals work, of course, is that they have a um, they have a editorial panel who run the thing and they have peer reviewers who review each paper when it's gets to whether it's going to get published or not. But the people who write the articles don't actually get paid for uh, writing the articles. And the peer reviewers don't get paid they don't normally get paid no. to review the articles either, do they? Yeah, so you've got these companies that are publishing these journals. They're making... They, they're making a lot of money from their mm. publishing and they essentially own the papers that are, that are submitted. The actual people who create the papers don't make any money out of it. So, you know, a lot of people, I suppose, when they, they first see how it works and they say, oh, it costs money to read the paper, they go, oh, well, you've got to pay the, um, you know, it's like any other creative work. You've got to pay the people who created it. But no, you're not actually paying the people who created it. You're just paying the publisher in this case. So it is kind of a difficult thing because it, you know, you have to ask how does it benefit the, the authors and also it certainly makes it harder for people to do science when they can't access these papers, which is why Alexandra Elbakian has basically kind of tried to then formalise and make it automatic, this process of sharing papers. So she created a website that essentially has access to a huge archive of papers. It has special keys that people have given to get around the paywalls for the journals. If you know where a paper is, you know the um, the address for it. You just put that into her website and then it um, connects you straight to a pirated copy of it. Now, it's no surprise that the the journals are not very happy with this. She has been taken to court. And there is currently a court case underway with Elsevier, which is one of the big international oh, yeah. publishers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're going, I, yeah. I know them. Yeah. Big science. Big, they are big science. Oh, yeah. If you haven't got a subscription to there, there's a lot of stuff you're not going to be able to access. Exactly. So they publish things like The Lancet, I think is one of their best known ones, which is the, um, you know, the, one of the leading medical journals. So, yeah, so they've taken to a head of court. And there was already a, uh, a court order that meant that they had to get rid of the original domain name, which was sci-hub.org, and it's now on a different domain name. And so the, the courts are trying to essentially stop them doing this website. But the website is hosted in Russia, so U.S. courts don't have much say yeah. over what happens in yeah. Russia, it seems. Look it's, look, it's been quite controversial because obviously the, the journals legally do own the copyright for, this, for these articles, 
so her website is stealing it. I've read a lot of articles, people saying, oh, well, she doesn't matter whether it's right or wrong, it's still breaking the law. But it does raise questions about, you know, what whether these things should be publicly available. Especially with and, some... And, and who the copyright is there to protect, really, I think is one of the important questions. Exactly. Like, one of the big things th- that comes out of it, too, is that... A lot of research is, of course, done by, uh, you know, at universities, this sort of thing. It's done by essentially government funding. So, you know, we pay through our taxes for researchers to do research, but then we're not allowed to read the research because it goes to a journal and then they um, control it. So there's a lot of funding bodies now that are insisting that people publish only in open access journals, so things like um, yeah. PLOS One, that kind of thing. But still there's a lot of stuff back in the, in the, in the archives which is, is locked up behind paywalls and that uh, is, is, is always going to be hard to access. And that is kind of the, the foundation of the, the research that people are doing today is still locked up there. And as I said, it also particularly affects people in less wealthy countries. So the, um, the Saiha website has mostly been accessed by India and Indonesia, Pakistan, Iran, China, uh, Russia and Brazil have been the main users of it. So, um, yeah, countries that can't necessarily afford to, to pay the big bucks. So yeah, it's, it's, it makes it's a difficult one. It raises questions about you know what is the right way for whether science should be free, whether knowledge should be free, whether the journals are worth essentially us basically all subsidising and keeping going with our research dollars that we are we are paying um, through our taxes because that's essentially what you're doing. Whether they they add value through their peer review process, um, these are the questions I guess that science needs to needs to wrestle with. Yeah, in the meantime, though, just just so you know, if you're looking for science um, papers out there, there are there are ways to get it. It would seem so. Ways and means. Ways and means. Yeah, I mean, it, it is it is a huge issue in that academics, who are often the people doing this research, are under huge amounts of pressure. You know, the old publish or perish is the saying in yeah. academic circles, and you know they don't get paid to do any of that publishing. All they get is this prestige, but the prestige is controlled by the people who control the journals that are the prestigious journals to get published in. So they're almost self-serving in a way. Um, And who's benefiting from the journals other than the journals? It's a huge question, really. Yeah. And is it good for science is the question. That's right. Well, well, ultimately, we want what's going to be best for for science is, is what it's all about. There is nothing wrong with your television set. Do not attempt to adjust the picture. We are controlling transmission. If we wish to make it louder, we will bring up the volume. If we wish to make it softer, we will tune it to a whisper. We will control the horizontal. We will control the vertical. We can roll the image. Make it flutter. We can change the focus to a soft blur or sharpen it to crystal clarity. For the next hour, sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear. We repeat, there is nothing wrong with your television set. You are about to participate in a great adventure. You are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind to the outer limits. Cats are more popular than ever in no small part due to the popularity of cat internet videos. Where would where would we be without the internet and cats? I mean, where would the internet be without cats, let's be honest? 
Yeah, mm. it would be a useless waste of time, yeah, Stu. Absolutely. As a cat lover, I am sure of this. And I mean, even, you know, it's permeating our life through the internet, but also our cultural events at White Night in Melbourne a couple of weeks ago. They had a cat uh, film festival at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image at White Night. Did you go to that? You know, this is the height of cultural... Was that a film festival for cats or a (laughs) film festival featuring films about cats? A film festival for people, cats optional, of cat videos. Cat internet videos. Cat internet videos, exactly. Cats have really just captured our collective imagination with their cute little furry faces and their little noses and all those ears. toxoplasmosis. (laughs) Yeah, that's how they've captured our attention. That's how really, captured yeah. our minds. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so when I heard that there's a citizen science project happening in South Australia that tracks regular everyday house cats, where they go and what they get up to, naturally, I was pretty curious, like a cat. You know what they say about curiosity in cats. <laughs> I so don't think that's a good. So, thing. Um, is this one of those things where they basically found they were killing all the native wildlife? And all right, okay. So there's yeah, look. There's there's that yeah. with cats. All you have to do is put a bell on your cat and uh and uh they, and they can only they catch they deaf can... native animals. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So this project's called uh Cat Tracker. It runs out of the University of South Australia and it's inviting cat owners to fill in a cat personality test and then the research will the researchers send out a tiny little GPS tracker collar for the cat. The cat wears the collar for a while as it goes about its regular business and then once the tracking is completed, the participants get a report on two things. They get a report on their cat's personality and a GPS map of where and how far away the cat has been and for how long. So the cat owners get an update on the private life of their cat and a window of insight into what their cat companions are actually like and how humans can better understand them and also better support them. Oh, because, yeah, <laughs> cats don't get enough support. Anyway, right. so what is it showing? Okay, so um, there was a similar sort of study in North Carolina that showed that urban cats don't travel that far. In fact, they normally stick to the built environment. Personally, if you put a GPS cat collar on my cat, she would... She'd be making a lot of trips between the food bowl and the couch and probably not much else. Right. So initially the researchers were hoping to track around 500 cats, but people have been very supportive of the program, as people are supportive of cats, and they've managed to clock up personality tests for over 3,000 cats. These 3,000 cat personality tests have led the researchers to come up with the cat versions of the big five personality traits. So for those who um, are not familiar with behavioural psychology, you've got the big five personality traits in humans, which is openness to experience, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness and neuroticism. Now, after some statistical analysis, the researchers found what they called the feline five um, (laughs) of cat personality. So you've got skittishness. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Outgoingness, dominance, spontaneity, and friendliness. Ah. Now let's look at these um, in- individually, and maybe you can think about what a cat in your life 
where they sit on this spectrum of personality traits. So skittishness. So cats with high skittishness are fearful of other people and other cats. If this sounds like a cat you know, they'll... Hide under the bed. Hide under the bed. Exactly. Yep. Like my cat. But cats with low skittish values are more likely to be calm and trusting of any old human. Okay. Outgoingness, this is characterised as the cat's curious nature and how active they are. So according to the researchers, many cats rate pretty highly on this scale. And the opposite of this is sort of aimlessness. And this normally is is typified in older cats, this sort of aimlessness. Sitting on the couch. Sitting on the couch. A cat that doesn't have a purpose. Yeah, which is interesting because they say curiosity killed the cat, but most cats are naturally inquisitive, so... It doesn't make any sense to me. Anyway, number three, dominance. High scores for dominance means the cat has a tendency to be a bully. Ah. Yeah, I'm sure we've all met a couple of cats like that. Um, And difficulties being around other cats. So low dominance shows submissiveness. If you're looking to encourage a multi-cat household, a low score in dominance is probably a good place to start. They get along better with one another. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, Number four, spontaneity. So high scores in spontaneity uh, means your cat is impulsive and erratic. They'll just come home on a Friday night and say, hey, let's do shots. (laughs) Maybe, Or or more than likely just run from one end of the house to the other and leap up onto the curtains. Yes, that's right. That's That's, that's typical uh, spontaneous spontaneous cat cat behavior. (laughs) Yeah. And low scores in spontaneity suggest the cat is predictable in its routine, yeah, and quite constrained. Right. Yeah. Okay. And the last one, finally, friendliness. Mm -hmm. So obviously the more your cat is affectionate and warm, um, the higher their friendliness score will be. I have a feeling that most cats' scores in friendliness would skyrocket around dinner time. really. They tend to be pretty nice to you around dinner time, and then once they're fed, it's like... No, I don't want to borrow of you anymore. <laughs> I don't know. Some some of them will just pretend that they haven't had dinner and they'll keep up the friendliness <laughs> in the hope that you've forgotten that they've been fed. Yeah. <laughs> so what I find quite interesting and what the researchers have highlighted is there's some overlap between the human big five and the cat big five. So skittishness is similar to neuroticism in mm-hmm. humans. Outgoingness is similar to extroversion. Yep. And friendliness is similar to agreeableness. Right. So the only the differences with cats is the dominance thing and the spontaneity. Yeah. So it's a pretty powerful tool for understanding your cat and maybe you can do things differently uh, based on where your cat sits within these big five personality, feline personality traits. And it would will also be interesting to see how these personality traits fit with the GPS data that they get as well. Wow. Yeah. Um, but for more info about Cat Tracker, go to discoverycircle.org.au. We'll put it on the website as well. Uh, I think at the moment the Cat Trackers are working specifically within South Australia, but they say if you are in another state and you want to get involved, then just drop them a line. Travelling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop. Lost in science.
I remember a joke from when I was quite little, which goes, is your nose running? <gasps> Better go catch it. I'm talking about running noses on our segment molecule in a minute because I'm actually talking about two different molecules. I'm cheating a little bit. Does this have anything to do with the fact that you might have a running nose? Or a that sick- it has a lot to do with the fact that I have a running nose and it made <laughs> me think about having a runny nose. So, yeah, I do have a cold and I don't like having a cold. Oh, uh, really? It's yeah. unusual. It's, it's unusual for most people. No, not really. Most people would probably go to the chemist, which is what I did. Yep. Went to the chemist, got something for my runny nose. Now, some years ago, if you went to the pharmacist and said, I've got a cold and I have a runny nose and I would like to stop having a runny nose, he would give you the commonly used decongestant pseudoephedrine. It's usually the most common... Um, thing that they used to prescribe yeah. or recommend for people with running noses. Uh, and now pseudoephedrine is a synthetic version of a chemical derived originally from the ephedra plant. Oh, uh, right. And it is has the effect of drying up mucous membranes, which is very handy if so you have a runny nose. Is that why it's called pseudo? Well, no, it's the chemical is pseudoephedrine. There's ephedrine, which yeah. comes from ephedra. Yeah. Um, and pseudoephedrine is also comes from ephedra, but they're very similar uh, similar chemicals that come from the same plant. One is more stable than the other one, which right. is why they use pseudoephedrine as a drug. So pseudoephedrine can also be used as a stimulant or wakefulness promoting agent. In other words, it keeps you awake. And that's not surprising as the chemical itself is classed as an amphetamine. So... One of the other properties of pseudoephedrine that has gained a lot of attention over recent years is the ease with which it can be converted into illegal drugs such as methamphetamines. Mm. So you can take pseudoephedrine and run it through a bunch of chemical uh, procedures, which I'm not going to elaborate on, and you can turn it into methamphetamine, which you can sell illegally as a drug. So because of problems associated with people using pseudoephedrine as a base for making illegal drugs, it has become law in most of Australia to present identification when purchasing pseudoephedrine from pharmacies. So that allows law enforcement officials to track people who may be purchasing large amounts of pseudoephedrine um, from different locations. So they'll go from chemist to chemist and buy a whole bunch of it and then turn it into something else. So in response to that, many of the brand name... Uh, cold and flu medications have released new formulations of their brands to the market without any pseudoephedrine contained in them. So instead they use an otherwise approved chemical called phenylephrine. They include that as the active ingredient in these new generation decongestants, which have no potential for making illegal drugs like methamphetamine, which sounds like a brilliant solution. Mm. So these new Remedies are stocked in pharmacies. They're even available in supermarkets and other non-pharmacy retailers. So that seems like we've solved the problem of using commonly available uh, cold medications to make and sell illegal drugs like methamphetamines, and people can still treat their colds very easily, except for the minor detail that phenylephrine doesn't work as a decongestant. So what does it do then? Why is it being used? Nothing. It doesn't well, do anything. No. It's perfectly safe for human consumption, <laughs> well, which obviously. is an upside. <laughs> you can't turn it into illegal drugs like methamphetamines, but several independent clinical trials of phenylephrine have found <gasps> that when it's taken as an oral decongestant, it has no 
effect. Is there any way it does work then? Like, why did they think it worked? Uh, there were trials where they used it intravenously. Okay. So they would administer it intravenously and it had some effect okay. as a decongestant. However, when you orally take it as an oral preparation, yep. it gets broken down in the stomach acids and has no effect. Um, so it has, uh, it's no better than a placebo, basically. Uh, a study in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology from October 2015 is the latest paper to question the effectiveness of the new ingredient at the recommended dosage. Mm-hmm. So the recommended dosage is about 10 milligrams every four hours, which is the same as what the old pseudoephedrine um, decongestants were recommended. But at that dosage, it has no effect, or no effect better than a placebo. Now, most of these preparations do have things like paracetamol, which help with other cold and flu symptoms. So yeah. you, you are actually mm-hmm. you know, getting something for your money. But um, you, know, you can also buy paracetamol really cheaply um, from you know discount chemists and that sort of thing. So paying the premium price for um, for paracetamol doesn't seem to be a useful way to spend people's money. So look, yeah, basically the the new generation of uh, decongestants have very little to no effect on your cold and flu symptoms. Right. So Certainly what, what, no effect on a runny nose. So what here? What have you got? These are the ones I bought. They were they were the old fashioned ones with pseudoephedrine. I had right. to show my license, and they take a copy of that and turn that over to to law enforcement. Um, so yeah, these these new ones might help with with the uh, aches and pains associated because of the paracetamol. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to stopping a runny nose, pseudoephedrine is nothing to sneeze at. That is it for another episode of Lost in Science. I hope that, unlike Stu, your nose is clear and um, and full of um, not runningness. I guess less snot, less snot for all round. I hope your cat is is outgoing, cheerful, spontaneous. Cheerful wasn't one of them. Friendly, um, not dominant, not dominant, and not skittish, not skittish. No. <laughs> 
Uh, but if they are, that's okay too. Yep, yep. And, you know, if you're going to um, pirate science papers, uh, don't go to court. Do it in Russia where you won't get caught. Um, Lost in Science <laughs> is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. It airs across Australia, the Community Radio Network, with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Please email us at lostinsci at gmail.com if you have any questions or comments or any other sort of feedback on our lovely program you can also find us on facebook or you can find us on twitter or you can find us on 3cr website where you have all our past programs you can listen to uh, as podcast yeah. form and this kind of stuff just look us up on your podcast server you should find us there and you can like the whole back catalog of lost in science it's 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 a thing it's a thing of beauty to behold apart from that you can listen to our new program and next next week we will once again uh claire Stu, and chris will get lost in science Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.